Can everybody hear me okay? Is, is that a yes? All right, good. Good morning. Um, Ashley, my wife, my amazing wife, is going to read the scripture this morning, Matthew 14. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 14. We're going to read the whole chapter. And I'd like for us to stand for the reading of the word, to honor the word. I know it doesn't look like it, but I'm, I'm a, kind of a traditional person. I like tradition. And, uh, and so I like liturgy. Anybody come from a litur- liturgical church background at all? Raise your hand, yeah? Okay, one person, great. So liturgy, it's just this, it's a sacred, um, uh, I guess, ordering of the, the church service. If you come from a Catholic, Orthodox, or Lutheran background, that's a liturgical background. And so often they will read the scripture, and then, so what we're going to do today is read the scripture, and then Ashley is going to end it with, what phrase? This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, this is the word of the Lord. She's going to say, she's going to read it, she's going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we're going to respond with, thanks be to God. Okay? So you got that? So we're going to read it, she's going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we'll be, say, thanks be to God. Why do we do this? Because we, we should be connected to what is sacred and connected to tradition, connected to a whole ancient history of Christianity. And so this connects us to our roots and also just reignites sacredness and stirs up our affections for Jesus even more. So let's read the scripture from Matthew 14, verse 1. We can hear you. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Well, this time I'm a Gave them to the disciples, 
and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go, and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray to by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when, he, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you are little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Desmarais. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So the story in the Bible, Jesus performs some of the most amazing miracles. The story occurs in chapter 14, where Jesus multiplies food to feed thousands of people. He walks on water. He controls a storm. And then he heals hundreds of people just by letting them touch his clothes. And while all these things are important, they're not the most profound truths that we learn from this story. What Jesus does is, not as, ama what Jesus does is amazing, but it's not as, as profound as who Jesus is to these people and who Jesus is to us. What we are about to explore is the very core of who Jesus is and how human he actually is. The title is called The Humanity and the Compassion of Jesus. We, last week we highlighted his divinity this, and his power and his majesty, and, and Ricky just proclaimed the wondrous, amazing works of Jesus. And so this week we're going to go through the same chapter highlighting the same story, highlighting the humanity of Jesus, the man Jesus. Let me give you some background, just to recap. Matthew 14 occurred during the first century AD when Jesus is actively, Jesus actively taught and performed miracles in ancient Palestine under Roman rule. So political tensions, religious diversity, social upheaval characterized this period. And culturally, Palestine at the time was a diverse region with a mix of Jewish, Roman, Greek, and other cultures as a melting pot. Jewish people were deeply rooted in their religious traditions and had a strong sense of national identity. They awaited the arrival of the Messiah who would deliver them from oppression. In verses 1 through 12, we see King Herod Antipas. And he's mentioned as ruling over Galilee. 
Herod's reign was marked by political intrigue and moral corruption. He faced opposition from various factions within society due to his controversial actions, such as marrying his brother's wife. The chapter also includes two notable events, the feeding of the 5,000, and he's walking on water. And these miracles demonstrate his divine power over nature, but also his compassion for these needy people. So the, the chapter begins with the news of Jesus' fame reaching King Herod, and Herod mistakenly believes that Jesus is John the Baptist, whom he had previously beheaded. The guilt and fear haunt Herod as he thinks that John has come back to life. Then the passage then recounts how Herod had arrested John due to his condemnation of Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother. John confronts the guy. says, what you're doing is horrible. It's immoral. It's vile. And Herod, the prideful man that he is, doesn't like it. So despite intrigue by John's teachings, Herodias holds a grudge against him and seeks his death. So Herod throws this lavish birthday celebration for himself. Herod is captivated by the dancing of his niece, Herodias' daughter. In a moment of impulsiveness and influence by those around him, he promises her anything she desires. And prompted by her mother's hatred for John the Baptist, she requests his head on a platter. Reluctantly, but bound by his promise in front of guests, Herod orders John's execution in prison. And the tragic event unfolds as John is beheaded and his head presented on a platter to fulfill the request made during the banquet. Hopefully you cannot relate to this story, okay? But can you imagine what Jesus is going through? His cousin, the kid he grew up with, is not only dead, but brutally murdered in one of the most grotesque, most extremely vile ways. And was in some of them and one of by the one of the most vile, evil women in the land. I mean, how would you react? Maybe you have lost someone close to you. Maybe in a horrific way. Maybe you felt like no one understands you or your situation. Yet Jesus does. In fact, he felt it more deeply than we can. The deeper your love, the deeper it hurts. And Jesus loves perfectly and deeply. And so what is Jesus' response? After the news of the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus withdrew, withdrew to a desolate place by himself. He goes on alone to a wild, uninhabited place, perhaps to grief to mourn, to break down, to process what's happening, to pray, to worship. Remember, Jesus is 100% God, but he is also 100% man. He's 100% human, yet 100% God. How long? How long would you mourn for? I mean, days, weeks, months? Yet Jesus quickly returns to his mission to save humanity. He quickly turns from grief to compassion. Compassion. I mean, what does this mean? Because 
it can't mean the same thing as when I feel compassion. My compassion is tainted with sin and selfishness. I have compassion, and then I do a good deed, and I feel great about myself. And then I feel pride, fill my heart, and then I feel like crap for feeling too good about the good work that I did. So is Jesus' compassion the same as when we feel compassion? The Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts. It refers most literally to the bowels or the guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Jesus. Jesus feels it in his bones. He feels it in his guts. He feels it in his bowels. I wanted to title this from the bowels of Jesus, but that's a little too edgy. He fills it to his core. When Jesus feeds the multitude, how does he do it? Does he pull a Moses or Elijah where he takes a staff and strikes the fish in two loaves? Does he yell loudly for all to hear? Does he make a spectacle at all? No, no theatrics, no drama. He simply prays a blessing over the food, just like he does with every meal. Just a normal prayer on a normal day from a normal-looking rabbi. Here's a truth I want you to, come, to take away from this passage right here. He takes the small and simple and humble and mundane things and uses them for its glory. You don't need to, need to lead a crazy, extraordinary, profound life for Jesus to use you. He takes your normal job, your normal situation, your stay-at-home mom schedule, your homeschooling schedule, your factory job, whatever it is, he takes the ordinary, mundane things of this life that seem that way, and he can use whatever he wants to. In fact, he loves to. He likes to take the simple things of this world to confound the wise, the small things of this world to confound the big. And who is blessed by this? Thousands of people. But who witnessed it? Who actually witnessed the miracle? Just a few of the disciples. I mean, not everybody probably saw the food being multiplied. They just ate it, and they took joy in it and pleasure in it. But they don't, I don't think they actually saw the miracle. And then even when Jesus performs the miracle, he does it in the most perfectly best, humble, and modest way. He shows these people another sign that he's the Messiah. What, he do, what does he do next? Does he parade through the town announcing his kingdom? Does he stand in the midst of the crowd waiting for everybody to bow down and worship him? He retreats again. Again, he leaves. He goes alone to a mountaintop. He goes to be with his father again. He goes to be refreshed, to pray, to worship. Jesus the Son gives glory to the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Holy Spirit glorifies them, them both. I mean, it's perfect. If you think about it, 
how does a God receive glory and honor and worship and stay humble at the same time? Well, in a Trinitarian God, they each keep giving glory to one another. So they're all perfectly glorified, yet perfectly humble. And then he commands the disciples to go on the other side of the sea without him. Why? Because in a good rabbi fashion, Jesus is about to teach them something. I mean, think about it. Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He's come on a mission to save humanity. He wants to show people that he's Messiah, that he's the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. But on the, on the human side, he's also still a rabbi. I mean, why does he come as a rabbi? He could have come as anything. He could have stayed a carpenter. Why is he a rabbi? I don't know why he chose to be that way, but what I do know is that as a rabbi, he's constantly teaching his disciples something. Even the extraordinary miracles, he's constantly teaching them something. Everything is a lesson. Everything is a lesson. So we have this storm. The disciples are in the midst of a terrible, violent storm, and they're terrified, probably fearing for their lives. And to make matters worse, they see an entity walking on the water that they believe to be a ghost. Are they superstitious? I mean, I'm not superstitious. Maybe I'm just a little stitious. Here's what you need to know about Jewish folklore. In Jewish belief in folklore, there's a connection between ghosts or spirits and bodies of water. The, and the association primarily stems from ancient Near Eastern cultural beliefs and certain passages in Jewish religious texts. And here's a few. The word sheol in Hebrew refers to the realm of the dead or the underworld, and it's often described as a deep place beneath the earth or associated with waters such as deep wells or rivers. There's water as a barrier. Water bodies like rivers, seas, oceans were seen as natural boundaries between realms, between the living world and the realm of the spirits or the dead. So crossing these waters was believed to allow communication with spirits. And then some folklore and legends Within Jewish culture, depict encounters with ghosts near bodies of water, such as lakes, rivers, and wells. And these stories often involve restless spirits seeking resolution or unfinished business before finding peace. So the disciples rightfully believe that they're seeing a ghost because that's what they believed. They believe that they're floating over a gateway to the supernatural world. And then we see, as a, see the, the word sea as a symbol. In Jewish culture, the sea was often, often associated with chaos and danger and unpredictability. So by walking on water, Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over the forces of nature. And what's also interesting is that many of these disciples were fishermen who spent their lives on the sea. So this event would have been particularly significant to, this, to them as it challenged their understanding of what is possible. I mean, they've been on the sea hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times. This place is familiar to them. But Jesus chooses to walk on water. Why? What's the point? Why does he do this? Why does he choose this miracle? What is this rabbi, what is he teaching them? Because he's always teaching them something. 
He takes them to a place that is familiar to them, a place they've been through time and time and time and time again. They have fished these waters at this time of night for hundreds of nights over their lifetime. Jesus, once again, takes normal, mundane, familiar setting and situation, uses it as a platform to perform one of the most amazing miracles ever. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus uses the familiar, your situation, your pain, as a platform to display his power in you. Jesus uses the familiar, your situation, your pain, as a platform to display his power in you. And so now every time after this, they will remember this moment. They will never look at these waters in this boat the same ever again. But again, why? See, raging waters were believed to be a gateway for the dead, and it symbolized chaos. If you look at the beginning of the story of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Formless, void, darkness, chaos. And the disciples are in a boat in the middle of a storm, floating over a formless, deep, watery abyss. And just as the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, so Jesus now hovers over the face of the sea. Jesus rules over the chaos. In the midst of the chaotic nothingness, Jesus walks over it. In the midst of the chaotic storm, Jesus stands firm. In the midst of the chaos and the turmoil all around them, fearing for their life, Jesus is constant. Even in the midst of the raging storm, Jesus rules and he reigns. He's teaching them a lesson. And the lesson is not that Jesus has supernatural powers, though he does. And it's not that he can defy the laws of nature, though he can. The lesson is that in this world and in your life, no matter the chaos, no matter the circumstances, or the terror, or the storm, or near death you may feel, Jesus can be trusted. And so he says, fear not, take heart, have courage. Yet Peter begins to doubt. I mean, what's Peter thinking in the first place? He sees Jesus walking in water, and he's like, can I come too? Jesus called me to come to you. And then, and then read the scripture, he does. He comes all the way to Jesus. He does walk on the water. He comes all the way to Jesus, and then he begins to sink because he sees the violent wind. He stops beholding the Messiah, starts beholding the wind. He stops beholding the Savior, starts beholding his circumstance. He begins to doubt, he begins to sink. takes his eyes off Jesus, gazes upon the water. Peter cries out for salvation, and what's Jesus' reaction? How does he respond? With condemnation? With judgment? With sarcasm? He has compassion. He fills it in his guts again, rising up, welling up in him. Compassion. And how long does Jesus take? Does he let him sink for a little bit? 
Does he let it gargle some water? He immediately grabs hold of Peter, and in the midst of the storm, he asks him a question. <laughs> he, even this is a teaching moment. He asks him a question. He takes him, he pulls him up, holding him so he doesn't fall again, holding him close, face to face, breath to breath. He cuts to the chase. He gets to the root of the problem. An amazing supernatural miraculous event is taking place, and Jesus takes the time to teach him a lesson. He says, Peter, why do you doubt? You have a little faith. Essentially what he's asking is, is Peter, why don't you trust me? I mean, you just saw the guy walk on water, right? Thought he was a ghost. Now he realizes he's God. And he still doesn't trust the guy. Still doesn't trust him. Still doubts. Essentially what he's asking is, Peter, what is in you that is getting in the way of you not believing in me? What is hindering your faith? And I'm sure in that moment, Peter can't think of anything else but that question, this haunting question, what is getting in the way? And then there's a response of the disciples is worship, which is the only proper response. And then the last portion of the passage, Jesus heals the sick in Gennesaret. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region, brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. As many as touched it were made well. They touched the fringe of his garments. Why? Why not? Why the hem? Why not any other part of his body? I mean, Jesus is powerful. I'd touch his hands. They touched the fringe of his garments. There is what is called the, in the Hebrew culture, it's called the zitzit. Zitzit is a Hebrew word that refers to the fringes or tassels that are attached to the corners of the talit, the Jewish prayer shawl. Rabbis would walk around wearing a shawl for prayer. At the fringe of the garments were tassels that represent the word of God, the law of God. And the purpose of wearing this is to serve as a reminder of God's commandments and to help individuals maintain their connection with God through their daily lives. So as a rabbi, Jesus would have worn this. These were ritual fringes. They represent all the commandments of God to remind them not to forget them. And they were warned to set themselves apart of, from the peop, as the people of God. Even Jews today wear fringes on their shirts and their garments. They were commanded to attach the zitzit to the four corners of the garments so that as they walked, they would drag the tassels across the ground as a sign they're constantly walking in the word of the Lord. In Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The word here for wings is kanaf. And it comes from the same word as fringes or tassels. 
So you can imagine when an eagle spreads out his wings, his feathers, and a rabbi spreads out his prayer shawl, it looks like the wings of an eagle. And so to cover themselves with this, when they prayed, signified that they were covered in the word of God. And so these Jewish people, they're taught the Hebrew scriptures their entire life. They don't, so they know what they're doing. They don't just touch any part of Jesus. They grab a hold of his fringes, his tassels, the tzitzit, the very thing that represents the word of God and his promises and the identity of Jesus because he is the living word of God. And so they know if Jesus is truly the Messiah, then there will be healing in his wings. And so what's interesting is Jesus doesn't pray for them. It doesn't say that in the text. It doesn't say that Jesus goes around and prays a prayer for everybody or every single individual. It doesn't say that he even laid hands on them. He did not command the sickness to leave. Miraculous power was constantly surrounding Jesus and flowing out of him. Jesus was like radioactive. It's constantly surrounding him, constantly flowing out of him. They touch the fringe of his garments. They go. They touch it. That's how they receive their hearing, healing. Jesus makes himself accessible to them. Jesus gives them an opportunity for healing. But they still have to go and grab a hold of his garment to receive that healing. It's available to everybody He's accessible to everybody, but only those as much as touched his garments were healed. Not everybody in the town was healed. Only those that went forward grabbed a hold of his garment. But here's a problem. Sick, dirty, filthy, nasty, unclean people are touching Jesus. Why is this a problem? Because they're making Jesus ritually unclean. To make someone unclean, especially a holy holy man, is punishable by death. So what should be happening is all these sick, nasty people, lepers, they're making Jesus unclean. At least that's what's supposed to be happening. Except... Instead of their uncleanness transferring to, the, to Jesus, the purity and holiness and power and righteousness of Jesus transfers to them. Their filth and uncleanness and sin transfers to Jesus and his righteousness was transferred to them. Because Jesus' purity was more powerful than their impurity. But even that is not the point of the story. The theme of this story is his compassion. So let's go back to this word. Matthew 14, 14, it says that he has compassion on them. I want to read an excerpt, excerpt from Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. He says, when we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, We see him prove with his actions time and again in all four Gospels. What he is, he does. He cannot act any other way. His life proves his heart. 
When the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus immediately stretches out his hand, touches him with the words, I will be clean. Matthew 8, 2 through 3. I will be clean. I am willing. Be clean. The word will in both the leper's request and in Jesus' answers, the Greek word for wish or desire. The leper was asking about Jesus' deepest desire. And Jesus revealed his deepest desire by healing him. And when a group of men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus cannot even wait for them to ask for what they want. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And before they could open their mouths to ask for help, Jesus couldn't even stop himself. Words of reassurance and calm tumbled out. And traveling from town to town, he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Matthew 9:36. So he teaches them and he heals their diseases. And then simply seeing the helplessness of the throngs, pity ignites. This compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick in Matthew 14, 14. He feeds the hungry. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He teaches the crowds. He has compassion on them. He begins to teach them many things and wipe away the tears of the bereaved. He wipes away the tears. He takes time to sit down and wipes the tears away of those that are mourning. He takes the time to sit with them, to wipe away each person's tears. And he had compassion on her. Luke 7 says, do not weep. Like I said before, the Greek word for compassion is the same in all of these texts. It refers most literally to the bowels or guts of a person. It's what rises up from his innermost core. The compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. Twice in the Gospels we're told that Jesus broke down and wept, and in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. And in one case, it's over Jerusalem. And in another, his deceased friend Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears was the tears of others. And time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and the undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. The Puritan Richard Sibbs put it this way, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. That is, whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. 
And then Sibs goes one step deeper. He did it inwardly from his very bowels. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affection stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. This is deeper than saying Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when, Jews, when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. He says, consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he's the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He is the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanliness of his mind and heart, the simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart. The longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. And we can all testify to the humanness of touch. A warm hug does, not, does something warm. Words of greeting alone cannot. But there's something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus the clean one touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. Jesus' Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity. We tend to think of the miracles of the Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. Yet German theologian Jürgen Moltmann points out that miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he's driving out of creation the powers of destruction, and he is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus walked the earth rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. Why? Because his heart refused to let him sleep in. Sadness confronted him in every town. So wherever he went, whenever he was confronted with pain and longing, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. Thomas Goodwin said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. Picture it. 
Pull back the flesh on the stepboard wives or the Terminator, and you find a machine. But pull back the flesh on Christ, and you find love. If compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? We don't have to wonder, but that was when he lived on earth. What about today? Here, we remember that the testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and touched lepers put his arm around, puts his arm around us today when we feel misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches out into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. Dane Ortland. Let me conclude with this. It's my prayer for us all here today. May we come to believe and know and trust. May you come to believe and know and trust that the Son of Man, Jesus, not only rules over the chaos of this world, but desires to rule over the affections of your heart. May you become aware that Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves but one who is love, whose merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Have mercy on us sinners. Have mercy on us sinners. Have mercy on us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for humanity. Thank you for becoming a man for us. Thank you for being human on our behalf. Thank you for experiencing everything that we've ever experienced, every temptation, every, every emotion that we experience. You've experienced it. Not only do you understand us, but we now can understand you. Thank you for reconciling us back to the Father. May we come to know and understand that what rises up deep within you, in your very core, is your compassion. You don't turn your nose up to us. You don't roll your eyes at us. But rather, you run towards us. And you take joy when broken people run to you for healing. There's nothing that we can do to please you. There's nothing that we can do to make you happy. The only thing that makes you happy and joyful and pleasing is that when we run to you for salvation, and fall into your arms of compassion. May today we know that you can be trusted. You can be trusted. You're the one that stands firm in the midst of the storm. You're the one that provides for us with just 
very little. You're the one that uses our mundane, normal, ordinary lives and can, and can make it miraculous. You can glorify yourself in the ordinary and the simple. And you're not the one that runs from sinners, but runs towards them. Thank you for your compassion. You're my prayer. Amen.